0: be seated. There's a sordid story in the book of Judges about a man named Micah of Ephraim. Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Later he admits his crime and he returns the coins to her and tragically, ironically, His mother celebrates this turn of events by taking 200 of those pieces of silver, turning them over to the silversmith and having them made into an image, an idol. Micah sets the false god in a shrine that's in his home, and he appoints his son to be the priest over this cult. One day, 600 armed men from the tribe of Dan pass by Micah's home, and they steal his idol, among other items of false worship. And Micah is livid. He's angry that his God has been touched. And he chases after the Danite warriors, demanding that they return his idol to him. Which, of course, they scoff and move on, and he goes back home sulking. Now, I'll admit, it's not the central point of the biblical account. Yet Micah's response illustrates the point that when you worship an idol you expect it to stay on the shelf where you put it. That's how idols work. And when that idol is moved against your will, you run after it. You want it back on the shelf where you put it. You try to recover it. Set it back in its assigned place. We scoff at the folly of Micah, worshiping a God that can be stolen. Worshipping a God and striving to keep it at the center of his worship. like He has to work to do that. And yet we're not all that unlike Micah sometimes. We're not unlike him when the image of God that we construct in the shrines of our imagination is stolen. And realistically, the biggest thief is the Bible itself. The one true living God revealed to us on the pages of Scripture is not a God, a little good God, who stays on His shelf. No one steals Him, of course. He moves on His own. When and where and how He pleases. Acting in ways that mess with our perception of who God should be. Now, he is always eternally consistent with himself, but he's not consistent with our imagination of what he ought to be. We say in our minds that God is supposed to be nice, he's supposed to be gentle and kind God is supposed to provide for us what we need as long as we define what need means he's our provider he's to be our protector he's to be fair God is always to be fair and equitable we've determined that in our minds and on some level he is all of these things But then we turn to the Bible and we read it honestly, page by page, through the entire text. And as we do that, we find God killing people for what seems to be minor infractions. And that's not nice. We see Him wiping out entire nations. And that's not gentle. In fact, as we read the Bible, we find a God there that's confusing. Can we say it here? Sometimes this God is embarrassing. You know what it all reveals? We have a God in our own image placed on the shelf of our mind that is not A holy God. What all of this reveals, our embarrassment, our confusion, our not wanting God to act like that, is that we struggle to grasp the fact that God is genuinely holy. As we noted last week, the meaning of that word, it speaks of God's separateness, of His apartness. To say that God is holy is to speak of God's otherness. It is to say that God is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct. It does not mean that He is arbitrary, that He just does what He wants and there's no rhyme or reason to why He does that. He is always consistent with His being, but He is to the core of His being, holy. And we are not. We've begun to trace His holiness in Scripture. We looked last week at the fact that He is creator. That is, God is distinct from His creation. He preexisted the material universe. He stands over it as sovereign, maker and sustainer. This is His world. He can and hear me. He does do with it as he pleases, because he's holy maker and sustainer secondly god hallows the sabbath the day on which he creates nothing that is he sets himself apart from creation as the supreme center of all worship and it's worship on his terms you will remember the sabbath day to keep it holy you will find your joy and your rest in me alone not in this world that i've created for your enjoyment Thirdly, in the garden, Satan attempts Adam and Eve to be what? To be like God. It's an assault on the holiness of God. And it's an assault that we naturally continue to this day. And fourthly, in the Exodus, God displays the glory of His holy name by miraculously defeating the gods of Egypt and delivering Israel from slavery. So that Moses stands on the other side of the Red Sea and he says, Who is like the Lord? He is holy. There is no other God. There is none like Him. Today we continue our journey into Scripture considering God's holiness and the law. The law that He issued to Moses and to Israel at Mount Sinai. Time permits us here today just to give simple highlights of this account it really could very easily be turned into a year of sermons uh, but just some highlights of this account the holiness of God and the law and I I, I warn you maybe particularly visitors this might seem like drinking from a fire hydrant we're going to move pretty fast through a lot of texts and a lot of ideas and you may not have un- may not understand all of these backgrounds and stories of the scriptures but go with me Because a holy God is not a God easy to understand, but He's a God of majesty and transcendence. And we see Him in the law as such a God. If you'll make your way to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Israel has come out of Egypt. They have been delivered from slavery and they stand now on the other side of the Red Sea. They have journeyed their way to Mount Sinai. and God has said that He would meet them here. And it is the manner in which God prepares Israel to receive the law that is so highly instructive in this 19th chapter of Exodus. Notice as we read this passage, the ways in which God demonstrates His separateness. Just keep that in mind. His uniqueness, His separateness, His otherness. Having escaped Pharaoh's army, journeying here to Mount Sinai, we see that God prepares the nation to meet with Him on this mountain. God is everywhere present, but in His wisdom He can objectify His presence to a particular location, and He's going to do that here on Mount Sinai. He prepares the people for that. He doesn't say, hey Israel... In about 15 minutes, I'm going to be on top of Mount Sinai. Start making your way up there and let's get together today. Not that at all. Chapter 19, verse 10. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So, first step, they're to wash their clothes. It's like getting ready for a wedding. You don't just come from work, you wear some clean clothes, some appropriate clothing to meet with God, and it's a several day preparation here. Secondly, they must observe these strict boundaries. They were not to approach the mountain until a signal was sounded with what would be a ram's horn. It says trumpet, don't think brass with three vowels, but think Ram's horn is sounding and saying that God is approaching, then they're not to cross the boundary encircling the base of the mountain on pain of death. So This this singular mountain rising up into the air and and around it is this boundary. You don't cross that boundary. Isn't it interesting, If, if you do cross the boundary, if anyone in Israel crosses that boundary, people aren't even to cross the boundary to go get them. They're to throw stones at them until they stone them to death or the archers are to take them down with an arrow. Is God being pretty clear here? You don't cross that line. There was to be no trespassing onto the mountain made holy by God's presence. None. You know, if we fail to grasp the holiness of God, His otherness, His transcendence, His hallowed separateness, these kind of preparations seem ridiculous, don't they? And isn't God being a little overdone here to kill people who cross the line and begin to climb the mountain? It's His holiness that demands this careful approach. And it is merely our inability to perceive of that holiness that causes us to even think this is a strange account. On his part, verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. What on earth is that? Well, further preparation. The garments, the boundaries, and now sexual abstinence. There's nothing evil about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. God invented it. He created it for our joy. It's a good thing. But in this case, even one of the most basic expressions of marital bliss was to be set aside as a means of devoted consecration in preparation of meeting with God. They were to be prepared, and they were to come carefully into the presence of a holy God. They encounter that holy God, beginning at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. <clears throat> the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a king and the king of heaven has descended upon the mount. The mountain serves now then as a staging ground for God's revelation. It's here that He will communicate His law to the people. Now you notice You've got to be asleep here this morning if you haven't seen this. God's not sitting on a chair Santa Claus-like saying, come little children, sit on my lap one by one and tell me what you want. God demonstrates His holiness how? How is He communicating to the nation who He is? It's shrouded in a cloud. There's fire, there's smoke, there's thunder, there's loud noise. This is an intimidating scene. What does God say first? The first thing he says is, keep the people away from me. Not come, little ones, and sit on my lap and whisper into my ear what you want. He says, keep the people at their distance. God is a loving God. And he's an all-wise God, but he is saying something here. A holy God can only be approached very carefully by sinful people. Be careful to keep them at a distance. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, the law is not coming yet. More instructions. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, think of this here. Moses has climbed up the mountain. God now says, go back down and tell them don't get near the mountain. Now, what are you thinking if you're Moses? He says exactly what we think he would say. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. God, you've already told us this. I've climbed all the way up this mountain, and now I've got to go all the way back down to tell them what I've already told them. And the Lord, verse 24, said to him, Go down, and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them again, With all the phenomenal activity on Mount Sinai, God wants Israel to be fully warned not to let their curiosity to lure them up the mountain. This is the third time that Moses has climbed this summit, and now the third time that he'll have to descend. He chooses this painstaking process God does to communicate something to Israel. By this method, God again warns Israel not to cross the boundary at the base of the mountain, not to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Only Moses, Israel's representative, is permitted to do that along with Aaron and only with preparation. God is being extremely cautious with Israel because from all appearances, I say he's being extremely cautious because from all appearances, there wasn't a whole lot to worry about. After the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, we return to the narrative, chapter 20 and verse 18, and we notice how the people are responding to this vision of God, this presence of God. Verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. They're not tempted to cross the line, They don't even want to get near it. And they said to Moses, verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. If this is the preparatory stage, I think they're on track here. I think they get it. If this is the preparatory stage, what's going to happen when God actually speaks? We're rattled by this thunder, we're rattled by this trumpet sound, and now he's going to talk? No, Moses, you listen to him and come tell us what he said. We don't even want to hear that. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God demonstrates just in preparation His holiness. Now as we come to God's holiness, we look then next at the first command, the preparation for receiving the law. God demonstrates His separateness, His apartness, His holiness, but also in the first commandment. And we'll limit it to this today. But chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God identifies himself by name. I am Yahweh, your God. And he identifies himself by what he has done, namely redeemed Israel from Egyptian slavery. So the Ten Commandments are no arbitrary list of rules devised simply to make people miserable. They are the words of the living God who has very recently rescued His chosen people from bondage and from death. Like their author, these words are their life. And in the first commandment, the commandment under which all the others flourish, we find this initial word, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. The idea is that you will have no other gods in addition to me. Not, I always have to be first among the gods, but I am the only God. There is to be none other, and God knows this is true, and so He speaks the truth to Israel. And He says, no other gods in addition to me. It is an assertion again of God's holiness. You see the theme here. His separateness, His apartness. I alone am God. No other gods. One or two? A few for our home shrine? No other gods. That's His goodness to us as it is His holiness speaking. He is entirely unique in the field of gods. He's alive. They are a fiction. In His first commandment, Israel is instructed to live out her days hallowing God's name, setting it off as utterly distinct and holy. But what the first commandment also reveals is our utter sinfulness. Every one of us utterly fails to honor this overarching commandment. In fact, as God works it out, the essence of the first table of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he summarizes the second table of the law to say of these commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. So as we approach God, we see His holiness, but as He speaks and gives His law, we recognize again His distinctiveness, His separateness, His holy purity, because we don't do what His law says. We fail miserably you know it's not let me i want to set aside two ideas that continue to creep in when it comes to god and his law god and his holiness we have this tendency that i can bat for an average you know we have these multimillionaires running around on fields all over this nation today who fail 7 out of 10 times now success is difficult 3 out of 10 times you got to hit a Small, hard ball that's thrown at you from only 60 feet and it's coming 90 miles an hour. But if you can hit that thing into the right spaces in the field three out of ten times, you're a multimillionaire. You're a rich baseball player. And we have a tendency to think, you know, that's kind of how it is with God's law. I'm batting for a pretty good average. I'm a pretty good person compared to other failures who fail. Eight out of ten times. It doesn't work like that. We cannot merely have a batting average with God's law. Keep some of them and he'll appreciate our efforts and reward us. No. The absolute holiness of God demands absolute conformity to his word. As James put it, if we break the law in one place, we are guilty of all. James could have said, we are guilty of all because we break them all. It's not an average. Further, it's not just keeping God's standard by, uh, by just performing the external, the letter of the law. But it's rather a matter beyond just missing some it's keeping all, but keeping them not just on the face of it, but at its very depth as it reveals the nature of God. Jesus taught us this. Do not commit adultery. We can say, I, I'm, I'm good on that one. I've, I've got a, at least a base hit on that one. I've never committed adultery. Jesus says, let me talk to you about this law not to commit adultery. If you understand this rightly, about the nature of God, that means to never look on another person with sexual lust. Or you've committed adultery in your heart. Do not kill. Man, I got that one covered easily. I haven't killed anybody. Jesus again puts his arm around us and says, let me talk to you about how that is pointing to the nature of God as we take it to its depths. If you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart. And on it goes through all. So it's it's not an average, but it's also not just fulfilling the letter of the law. It's what it's leading us to in the very nature and person of God. And in this sense, we have committed crimes against the holy God. Day after day, after day and as I face this holy God then I come to see his holiness his separateness I cannot keep his law God is entirely just to, and eternally just to eternally judge us for our sin in hell because he is holy and we are not he is the creator this is his nature we fail his law the question is why anyone lives before this holy God. There is hope. There is hope, and that's why we're here. But first, God's holiness in preparation to receive the law, God's holiness in the first commandment, God's holiness in the law respecting worship. Now here, again, we could go at at great length, which we don't have time, but as we move through Exodus... If you want to even just skim through in your Bible, chapter 25 through 40, we find the establishment of the tabernacle, it's being laid out there for us in Scripture. These chapters record clear specifications for the tent where Israel met with God on his terms. Those that have been in this church for any period of time, we, we know this well, we've understood this. Some of you, this may be a bit new, but let me summarize just briefly. God put on the outside of the circle the Gentiles. That's probably virtually every one of us right here today. Inside that circle, He put the Israelites. Inside that circle, the Levites. Inside that circle, the Aaronic priests. And those priests were the only ones that were able to enter into the tabernacle itself. Only the priests. Only the Aaronic priests of the Levitical tribe. And within the tent there was a separate room called the Most Holy Place. The inner sanctum of the tabernacle where the presence of God hovered above the Ark of the Covenant. And into that area only one high priest one day per year and only with careful preparation including the blood of a sacrifice. So you put that together. Holy of Holies. One priest, one day per year. The holy place, daily, but only these certain priests. Outside in the area surrounding the tabernacle, a fence, only the Levites. And outside of that, the other Israelites. God is saying something very pointedly because His presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. He's saying, I am a holy God, and I must be approached on my terms by sinful people. He is saying that it is very difficult for sinners to approach a holy God. As God's holiness was emphasized in this restricted access to His presence, so the depravity of the Israelites was emphasized not only that way, but in the daily ritual of life. In this law code, God continues to point to the Israelites as those who are constantly becoming unclean. Now, we really struggle with this on this side of the cross, and it's understandable. But there are laws, beginning with the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, laws pertaining to, for instance, bodily discharges. And I know, if you've read your Bible, you go through this and go, really, what on earth is going on here? Is this helpful to us? It was very helpful to Israel where they were in that stage of revelation. Menstruation for women and seminal emissions for men rendered the un- individual unclean and unable to enter in the temple or er- er, the tabernacle area. That's just life, but this ritual uncleanness was also easily spread to others. If a person with a bodily discharge was on a bed, anyone touching that bed would become unclean. Any garment that they touched, that someone else touched, they also became unclean. If a woman was menstruating, anything on which she sat was unclean, and anyone who sat on that thing was unclean. And when someone was unclean, a whole litany of cleansing rituals had to be followed in order to gain cleansing. Now what's the point in all of this? The point is not that the body is evil or that, for instance, menstruation renders a woman sinful. Not at all. What it was all saying is we are, through childbirth, sinners. Everything about us is corrupted with sin, it's just these natural things of life that even remind us of that in the law code. If you carefully follow all the normal things that could make a person unclean, it is clear that Israelites who followed the law of God were constantly brought to remember their uncleanness. Just by virtue of their humanity. Unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. Again, not because these things in and of themselves were evil but because we, as the children of Adam, are sinners, and God is not. So with this process, he continues to help the Israelites see their uncleanness and their need to ritually approach God. We come then to the priesthood. Detailed purification rituals and careful regulations are set in place for those who are able to serve the Lord. That brings us back to Leviticus chapter 10, which we read earlier. I'll give just a couple of examples here, if you'll continue to plow with me. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, reads, verse 1, "...these sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them." And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. What's that word mean? I will be made holy. I will be seen as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. They deserved this judgment. Now we don't know everything that they did. We're not sure entirely what was in their minds. But what is clear is that God had laid out how he would be approached. And Nadab and Abihu said, you know what, let's be innovative here. And we'll approach God on our terms. I think he'll like our incense. It'll be fine. It wasn't fine. They chose to approach God on their own terms. And God, well, how do you see it? This is one of those places that seems embarrassing to us. In our unholiness. It seems like God explodes in anger. He flies off the handle over something that's really not that big of a deal. Again, it reflects that we don't understand the holiness of God. You don't approach Him on your terms and live to tell about it. There is nobody sitting in this auditorium that will approach God on his or her own terms and live to tell about it. We may make it a while in this life, but when we meet him in eternity, we have got to come on his terms. He's a holy God. That's what he's teaching Israel in very pointed ways. One more example in the priesthood. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles 13, and verse 6. In context, David has conquered his enemies. He has established Jerusalem as the capital. And he is now bringing that Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence with the people, up to Jerusalem. And David, verse 6, and all Israel went up to Balaam that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the beam. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might. With songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. They're celebrating. This is God's day. His ark is coming to this place of rest that God's been talking about for generations. What a wonderful day. And when they came, verse 9, to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck Uzzah down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? The oxen stumble The thing's about to drop in the earth and somebody just simply tries to steady it and God strikes him dead. What am I going to do? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Can I... Add, I think, an editorial comment because Obed Edom never touched it. So God blessed him. Now, honestly, as you read that, have you not thought this seems exceedingly unfair? The image we have of God—that he's to be fair at all times—is it really fair? The guy's just trying to help out here. What if the ark had fallen to the earth? And had been sullied by that fall. What if it had broken apart? Wasn't Uzzah just doing what you would do? Walking behind a cart and steadying something that's going to fall? It was a reaction after all. And God strikes him dead? Oh, there's much more going on than that. The priests were told in the law that they alone could carry the ark And how did they carry it? There were rings on each corner and poles put through the rings. Those poles would go on the shoulders of the priest and that's how you carried the ark of God. That's the only way it was transported. You never touched it. Because God was saying, you don't touch me. I touch you. I am holy and will be seen as holy. No one touches this ark. Now here is Uzzah coming along. He knows this. All of the priests know this is how you move the ark. We're going to speed things up here. We're going to put it on a cart and get it there quicker. And so when that thing starts to fall, his natural reaction Is to steady it because he doesn't see it as holy. I I think I can illustrate this. I hope this works. But you're grilling meat out behind the house. You're making a big meal, and this thing gets really, really hot because you made a lot of a lot of people for dinner, and you're making you're grilling all this meat. And through some series of events, you start to move it, and it starts to tip because you hit a rock a crack in the sidewalk and the whole thing starts to tip what do you do what's your natural reaction because you know that thing is so hot you back away and let it fall now i know it's possible to reach your hand out just without thinking but even in natural response when we're aware of something being extremely hot When it falls, we back off and we just let it crash. Because I put my hands on that thing, I'm in big trouble. That's what Uzzah did not do. This ark was too hot to handle. It wasn't hot because of natural coals of fire, it was hot because of the holiness of God. And the natural reaction of Uzzah showed he didn't treat it as holy. It wasn't all that special. if Uzzah had valued the holiness of God like we might value a hot, tipping grill, he would have backed away and let God take care of it. And I guess we could say they would have put the poles through it and treated it the way it was supposed to be treated from the beginning. In fact, you would David say, I'll never get this thing up to Jerusalem. What happens? It's just chapter 12, and he gets it up to Jerusalem putting the poles through the rings and putting it on the shoulders of the priest, he gets it to Jerusalem. It's not God is out to get him. God is out to say to his people, I am a holy God. And it's more important that you get that than that Uzzah lives. And if we don't see that, it's because we don't see him as holy. Oh, I tell you the ridiculous ideas that people have about this passage and how to write it out of the text and say it didn't happen that way. It is unbelievable. There was a lightning strike. He had a heart attack. It didn't really happen because they got another image of God on their shelf of their brain saying here's how God is supposed to behave. And it's not like that. What God did to Uzzah was absolutely just. And He is sending a message to us of how we need to see Him and love Him. Because like Uzzah, we too live in ways that make sense to us. Because we're an unholy people, we fail to appreciate the holiness of God. We do things our own way. What we need to do is orient our lives to the will of God and learn to see life as He sees it and to treat as holy what is holy, and as profane what is profane. God's holiness is a call to turn from our idolatrous imaginations and to fall at His feet in abject spiritual poverty, yearning for fellowship with the living God. Rather than question God's justice, a vision of His holiness, teaches us that it is a mercy that any of us lives. Rather than confronting God, rather than transforming Him to our own image of who we believe He's supposed to be and how He's supposed to behave, we need to fall before Him in fear and cry out for mercy. And when we do that, when we see Him in all of His holiness, when we see our profane lives as distinct from who He is, when we learn to turn from our sin and to seek Him, it is then that we orient ourselves to truly rejoice in His mercy. See, there's so many who are Christians who run around thinking God kind of owes me mercy. So I'm not that bad of a person and that's just who He is. When we see His holiness, we know all we deserve is His judgment. In fact, I would imagine that every one of us, and some maybe particularly here today, you're really insensitive to the grace and the goodness of God. You hear talk of salvation, it just doesn't register that deeply. It doesn't move you that deeply. It doesn't bring tears, it doesn't bring joy. It, it's just, yeah, it's kind of the facts of the Bible and, 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 I, and I'm depending on God for my salvation, but it doesn't move you deeply. The reason is we don't see the holiness of God and how just He would be to judge us in our sin. When we do see His holiness, we do see His justice, it's then that we can understand mercy. To borrow a line from C.S. Lewis, we feel as glad as anyone can feel who's afraid, and as afraid as anyone can feel who's glad. There's this strange mixture of fear and gladness in the presence of God. Because I've come to terms with His holiness, I know who I am before Him, and I know of His mercy. The holiness of God teaches us that He must be approached on His terms. His mercy teaches us, here it is, that there are terms. Holiness, we must approach Him on His terms. Mercy, there are terms. God's law is not the means by which we satisfy the holiness of God. God's law shows us that we cannot do so. Our sin is a treason against the Holy God and we are utterly incapable of pleasing Him in our own strength. But in His mercy... He not only lets us live in His mercy, He pours out His anger and His judgment upon Jesus Christ our Savior. And in Jesus Christ, we receive this standing of righteousness before God. Not on our works, but on the work of Christ. And As that mercy is given to us, we see ourselves standing on the edge of hell and knowing I deserve to enter into the judgment of God, but here at this place, He gives me His standing of righteousness. And now, I still fear Him, but I love Him. There are terms. In His his mercy, this holy God reaches down to us and provides a way for His holiness to become ours. His standing to become ours and His grace to be our song and our salvation forever and ever. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give You praise. We give You thanks as we come now into Your presence, not with days of ritual pursuit but now move in quickly because of the work of Jesus Christ our Savior forgive us of our false images of who you are forgive us of treating you as profane and common I pray that this church would be deepened to see you as the holy God that you are that we would come to worship with fear with anticipation that we would gather before Your Word and in prayer each day, seeking Your holiness in our lives, but knowing and rejoicing that Your holiness has been satisfied by the death and the resurrection of our Savior. It is only in Christ that we have any hope only in the sacrifice that You have provided to pay the penalty of sinners. We behold Him there, the risen Lamb, our spotless righteousness. is not in our performance. It's in our Savior. We praise You, and we plead that You'll draw to that light those that are still in the blindness of their profane and common way of life, thinking that they can please you because they've created you into the image they want you to be. May we see that you are wholly other, and may you draw us to the light of your saving grace in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.